Hey, good morning. So glad you're here this morning to worship the Lord. Let's uh, open our Bibles, if you could please, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just as you're uh, turning there this morning, uh, very excited to let you know that next weekend um, we have the privilege of welcoming Pastor Jason Locke, uh, who is the senior pastor at Hope Bible Church in Markham. And uh, Lord willing, he's going to be here next week to preach, and uh, very thankful for that, thankful for Jason and uh, for the ministry that the Lord has given to him in Markham, and uh, this will be Jason's first time here. So I just want to encourage you as you're able uh, and you have opportunity next week to welcome him and his family. Um, I know that would mean a lot to them, and uh, so they're going to be here next week. And then uh, the week following that, Lord willing, again, uh, Pastor Kyle is going to preach as well. And so I just want to put that before you and encourage you to be praying for those guys as they prepare over the next couple of weeks and and to be praying for us as well, uh, for the Lord um, to give us hearts that are ready to receive all that he has for us in his word and through his servants. Um, So that's coming up over the next two weekends. Uh, Today, though, we're back in our series in 1 Corinthians, and this section uh, through the first part of this book that we have titled The Church Undivided. The church undivided. And again, just by way of context, as we find ourselves now a few messages into this series, uh, the church in Corinth was planted by the Apostle Paul. And so by the time he writes this letter to them, this church is about three years old, and he's writing the letter in response to some questions that some people in the church have, but he's also writing in response to some of the concerns that he has heard. And uh, essentially, what it's come down to is that this is a church that early on had lost its way. And of course, Paul loves this church. He loves the people within this church. And so he's writing to them now to address some of the questions and some of the concerns that they have. And what we've noticed so far, even just over these first few weeks, and we'll continue to see this as we make our way through this series, is that uh, Paul keeps bringing them back to the gospel over and over and over again. To say that even though you might be up against this challenge in your life or you're facing that difficulty in your life or you're working through that problem within your life, that the answer to whatever it is that you're going through is to see how the gospel applies to that and how the gospel impacts all of it. And so when you look at our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, you're going to see that there's something of a warning that we're going to come across here and we're going to get to that in just a minute. But I think there's also something of a great encouragement that is here as well. To see that if you and I live in a certain way, and if, if you will keep this one thing as central to your life in all that you do, then there is great encouragement and there is wonderful blessing for the child of God who will live their life in this particular way. And so Paul's warning, but also his encouragement that comes through this passage here, is to live a cross-centered life. To live a cross-centered life. His exhortation to us is to keep the cross of Jesus Christ at the center of all that we do. Which, when you think about it, is absolutely absurd to the world in which we live. Like, if you're going to pick something that symbolizes the entire scope and sequence of your purpose and existence within this universe, then the very least that you could do is choose something that symbolizes power. Choose something that conveys positivity or individualism or acceptance or tolerance or some of these other key words that are buzzing around our culture and and just choose something as a symbol of your life that just welcomes as many people as possible into your life. And yet the Bible says here what we're going to see in a few minutes, the one thing that should symbolize your life, the engine that should drive your life forward is a symbol of humiliation. It's a symbol of disgrace. 
of torture, of mockery, of what looked like it was apparent defeat. And so Paul says, that's the hub around which the rest of your life, as a follower of Jesus, should revolve. And so we sit here, and we process that, we, we think through that, we think through this message that we're going to read here uh, from 1 Corinthians 1 in just a minute, we try and process that and we're like, okay, wait a second, Paul, like, like what exactly are you saying here? Like, what do you mean? You want my life to revolve around that? You want my life to revolve around the cross of Jesus Christ that symbolizes those things? And so we do our very best within our culture to try and contextualize that, and, and so we come up with things where we hang pictures of crosses on our walls, and we knit it onto pillows on our couches, and we wear it on chains around our necks, and, and all well and good, nothing wrong with those things. Um, and yet, what Paul's kind of saying here is, is he's like, okay, just a second, but, but we look at this, and, and we're like, help me understand this, Paul. Like, you want me to make this symbol of shame and humiliation and death the one thing around which everything else in my life orbits? Like, that's what you want me to do? And, and I, I just kind of wonder, maybe if there's any of us who are sitting here in this room right now and we're thinking, man, I don't know. Like, I don't know about that, Paul. I, I, that sounds kind of extreme. I don't know if I can give my life to that. I don't know if I'm up for that because that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and in some sense, there's got to be more to it than that. And there is. And part of what we're about to see here in this passage in 1 Corinthians 1 is that Paul gives us at least three reasons why the cross must be central to all that we are and to all that we do. Why the cross on which Jesus died, why this symbol that, that we look to as the focal point of our worship, why the cross must be central to every part of our life, why it must be central to our marriage, why it must be central to our family, why it must be central to our parenting, why it must be central to our finances and our resources and, and our jobs and our relationships and our friendships and, and everything that goes on within the scope and sequence of our life. Why is it that the cross must be central to everything that we are and to everything that we do? Why the cross of Jesus Christ must be central to who I am, to who I am in Jesus Christ, to the person that God has made me to be. Why is it that the cross must be central to all of that? That's the question that Paul's going to answer here for us in this passage, so let's read it together. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 25, and I hope and pray and I believe this morning words of instruction here for sure, uh, but also words of great encouragement for us as well. So follow along in your copy of God's word as I begin reading chapter 1 and verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
All right, the cross must be central to all that we are and to all that we do. Here's the first reason that uh, we find here in this passage. You can jot this down. Because the cross declares God's love over you. The reason that we must keep the cross central to all that we are and to all that we do is because the cross declares God's love over you. Now, of course, we're picking this up in the middle of Paul's train of thought here in this first section, and we're hopping onto this train with what we looked at last week in verse 17. And so if, if you can, just divert your attention back to verse 17 just for a minute to help us establish uh, this train of thought one more time. Verse 17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so it's kind of like he's saying here, the whole point of why we're here right now is not to get sidetracked by these secondary debates about who baptized whom. Instead, we are here to preach the gospel. And notice he says here, we're here to preach the gospel, not with, elo- not with words of eloquent wisdom. So he's looking to them and he's saying, listen, I'm not here to razzle-dazzle you with my oratorical ability as if my words could convince you to believe in Jesus. He says, that's missing the point. That's not why we're here. Why? Because the power is in the cross. The power is in the cross of Jesus Christ. The power is in the work that God accomplished at the cross. Which brings us then to verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So notice this first. There is a very specific message that the cross speaks. And the message that it speaks is a message of God's overarching love for you and for me. The overarching message of the cross is a message of God's love for every single one of us. The word of the cross is that God has made us in his image and for his glory and he has made a way for us to be reconciled to him and that even though we have sinned against this holy God, he has stooped down to us out of his own initiative and completely independent of our effort and he has made it possible for us to be forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future, so that we could be with him forever. But for that to happen, he sent his only son, Jesus, to live a sinless life of perfect obedience to God the Father. And that sinless life is what makes Jesus the only acceptable sacrifice for our sins. So what that means then is that Jesus lived his life knowing that he would die that death. And in dying, the judgment of God against all of our sins, the wrath of God, the anger of God against all of our sins was put on Jesus. This one who had no sin died as if all of our sin was his. He was mocked. He was tortured, he was humiliated, he was spit upon, he was stripped, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was despised and rejected, he was crushed, he was crucified, and he was left alone to die on a wooden post for everyone to see, but he died so that we could live and have life abundantly. That is the word of the cross. Don't miss this. Like the word of the cross is the word of God's eternal love for you. Notice here, he doesn't call this the word of the resurrection. He doesn't call this the word of eternal life. He calls it the word of the cross. It's the word that real life comes only through death. And that's the word of God's great love for you. The reason that I say that is because you can see here in verse 18 that The word of the cross actually provokes one of two responses from people. 
There's really only two responses that a person can have to the word of the cross, to what God has accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no middle ground. There's no third option. Like People respond in one of two ways. First of all, notice verse 18. He says that, that uh, it's folly to those who are perishing. Folly here is the idea that to an unbelieving world, uh, that the word of the cross is not just hard to believe, it's that it's profoundly ridiculous. Makes no sense at all. And, and you know that to be true, right? Like think of the times where, where you've shared the gospel with family, with friends, with people that you love, and, and they look back at you as you share the gospel with them, and they're like, what, are you crazy? Like you want me to believe that? Like how can you order your life around that message, around that philosophy? Like that makes no sense. You're not living for yourself. That doesn't make any sense at all. It's folly to those who are perishing. Notice he, he says here that those who reject it are perishing. It means that they are dying. But that word perishing here carries with it the idea that the dying is never done dying. It's dying that because of their rejection of the cross, it will last into eternity. And when they get to eternity, they will want to die. But that desire to die will never be quenched. It's an eternal perishing. He says to some, that word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But notice what he says next in verse 18. He says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So see this. When we're saved, when we arrive at that point in our life where God opens our eyes to to his grace and causes us to see the wonders of the gospel, it totally revolutionizes how we see the cross. It revolutionizes how we see the things that God has done, the work that God has accomplished for us in the death of Jesus Christ. Because now we look at the cross, the cross is no longer a symbol of weakness, it is a symbol of strength. Because now, with new eyes, we see the power that God has brought about at the cross. And we know the power that God has brought about at the cross because we know that to be true within our lives. In fact, notice what he says Notice how that power is at work in verse 18. He goes on and he says, to those of us who are being saved, who are being saved. Notice he says, who are being saved. He doesn't say to those who are saved. He says to those who are being saved. In other words, saved at some definite point in our past where repentance and faith happened and we look to God in faith for the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ, saved at some point in our past, being sanctified as we live the Christian life now so that we're made more into the image of Jesus, but then we are secured to the very end when one day we will be with the Lord forever and we will see him face to face. We're saved in the past, sanctified in the present, secure until the end. Like just think for a minute about the spiritual timeline that takes place within the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning, you're saved in Jesus Christ, this is true in your life, think of the spiritual timeline that has been applied to your life. At some point in eternity past, God chose you. Maybe you remember back uh, to our series in Ephesians that we did last spring, and, and right off the hop, right in chapter one, right early on, Paul says that God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So at some point in eternity past, before time ever began, before the world was ever created, before you, long before you were born, long before I was born, God chose us simply because of his grace and his good pleasure. He chooses us to be in relationship with him. And then 
We live our life, and at some point in our life, again, we come to that place where we are saved, and because of uh, the gift of God's grace, repentance, and faith, we believe in Jesus, and, and we have this hope of eternal life that is ours now because we're in relationship with him, we're reconciled to him, and then God takes us through this process for the rest of our life where he sanctifies us, he makes us more into the image of Jesus, and he makes us the promise that we will be his, we will be with him forever, and he will hold us until eternity future. So think for a minute about that spiritual timeline all the way from eternity past all the way into eternity future. God holds you. Like there is no way that you can look at that entire spiritual timeline of your life and not realize that is the power of God. That's that's what God has done within your life. And so for all of us who are sitting here right now and we're saved in Jesus Christ, like this is our story. Like, think about it. There was a time in your life where you were perishing, where, where you and I, we, we looked at the cross and we thought, no way. Like, not a chance. There is no way I'm going to believe that. There's no way I'm going to structure my life. Like, some of you could stand up here and you could tell that very story. Like, you lived in utter rebellion against God. We all lived in utter rebellion against God. And there's no way that I can believe anything that has to do with that. And yet now... Here we sit today, gathered together like this, but for the grace of God. And we see that it is the power of God that has rescued us from perishing in eternal darkness and has given us life and light in Jesus' name. And why has that transformation happened for you? Why has that taken place in your life? It's happened for you because of the cross. It's happened for you because God has accomplished this unbelievable, awesome work of salvation through his son at the cross of Jesus Christ. And this, loved ones, above, listen, this above everything else, this is the message of God's love for you. Here's the thing. The word of the cross is not just the message of the death of Jesus for us, Notice here, it's also the message of our death to ourselves. It's the word of the cross. Someone pointed this out to me after the message last week, knowing that we'd get to this verse here today, and and I thought this is such a a key, unbelievable insight that I wanted to share it with you as well. And um, Notice, the word of the cross is the word of death to myself. It's a word that says, because of love, and specifically because of God's love for me and to me, It's the message that says, I no longer live for myself. I live for the Lord who loved me and gave himself for me on the cross. I live for him. And when you think about it like that, the implications of that, quite frankly, are staggering. That means then that my marriage is for Jesus, not just for me. And my kids are for Jesus, not just for me. My family is for Jesus, not just for me. My time is for Jesus, not just for me. My job is for Jesus, not just for me. My thought life is for Jesus, not just for me. My entertainment choices are driven by Jesus, not just me. My friendships are for Jesus, not just me. My future, my decisions, the entire scope and sequence of my life is for Jesus and not just for me. And honestly, the world is going to hear that role off of our lips, out of our mouth, and they're going to look back at us and scream, folly, right? Foolishness. 
That doesn't make any sense at all. Like, why would you live your life like that? Because the, the message of the world is to say, live for yourself. Do your own thing. Make your own way. Try and figure it out on your own. Listen, loved ones, the word of the world will tell you a message that is completely opposite of the word of the cross. The word of the world will tell you over and over again, it's okay to cheat a little bit here and there. The word of the world will tell you it's no big deal to have sex before you're married. And the word of the world will tell you you can do whatever you want to get ahead, even if it means crossing lines that you never before would have crossed. Like the word of the world will tell you over and over and over again exactly opposite the message of the word of the cross. But the word of the cross says, no, I can't do that. No, I won't do that because I no longer live for myself. I live for the Lord who loved me and gave himself for me. I live for the Lord who died on the cross for me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The cross must be central in our lives. Listen, because the cross declares God's eternal love over you. Number two. The cross must be central because the cross reveals God's wisdom for you. Reveals God's wisdom for you. What Paul is about to say here in these next few verses is this. God has totally turned things upside down by making life possible for the many because of the death of the one. In other words, we have life as the many because Jesus died as the one. So what he's saying here is that salvation depends entirely upon God, and what he's about to say next is that wisdom for living this life also depends entirely upon God. So notice here verse 19. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In other words, uh, the discernment of the discerning, I will render it ineffectual. It won't work. Uh, Paul is quoting here in verse 19 from Isaiah 29 and verse 14. And I think it'd be really helpful for us to understand the context of the passage that Paul's quoting from. Isaiah 29, so uh, God is speaking in large part about the people of God and their worship practices in the day of Isaiah. And so um, they're showing up to the temple and they're showing up to the worship services and they're singing the hymns and they're praying the prayers. And if you were to look at them purely from the outward appearances that you could see on the outside, it would look as though everything was just fine. It would look as though they had it all together, but then God says this to them in Isaiah 29 and verse 13, up on the screen, follow along with me. And the Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So in other words, when it comes to their worship, they say the right things, and they do the right things, but ultimately their heart is far from me. So they can say what they want and they can do what they want, but if their heart is nowhere close to me, then in the end, it doesn't really matter what they say or what they do. So God goes on in in the next verse, in verse 14. He says, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom, here it is, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. So that's the part that Paul quotes back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, 
The reason that this mattered so much in Isaiah's day is because the nation of Judah was being attacked by the very powerful Assyrian army. And so Judah's leaders, including King Hezekiah, were looking for any way that they could possibly find in order to defend themselves. The problem was they weren't seeking after God. They were just trusting in their own wisdom to try and get themselves out of the difficult situation. And so they're putting strategies together. They're thinking about forming alliances and treaties with neighboring nations who also defied God. And so that's when God says this in the next verse, verse 15. He says, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? In other words, it's not just that they're trying to hide from God. They're trying to hide, period. And, and he's saying you're, you're depending on what you know and what you think to get yourself out of the hard spot that you're in. Now think about this for a minute. Isn't that the way that kids react? Isn't that the way that, that children often behave? If, if you have young kids, maybe you can think back to when your kids were young and, and at home, and, and they're like, man, if I can just hide this from mom and dad, then it's going to be fine. And who's going to know, right? And, and who will see? And who will know? Right? And so they do everything they can. It's like, if I can, if I can just eat the entire pan of applesauce cake and then blame it on the dog. I'm not saying that happened at our house. Or even that I was the one who did it. But, but you know, it, if I can just do that. If I can just hide this from mom and dad, then, then nobody else is going to know. It's not going to be any big deal. Right? And isn't that the way of our culture? Like, like, just do your own thing. And if it doesn't hurt anybody else, then what's the big deal? Like, even if nobody else knows, what's the big deal? Like, who will see? And who will know? And we go through life living like this, and so often we respond. This is the way that we respond when we find ourselves in a hard spot. Like, here's what I know, and here's what I think, and if I can just find my way out of this, and if I can just do this my own way, then who will see? And who will know? The thing about what's going on in Isaiah 29 is that God promises that he's going to act for his people. And so we ask the question, well, what happened with Judah and Assyria? What happened with, with King Hezekiah? What's going on here? So we fast forward now to Isaiah 37, and Isaiah 37 tells us that Assyria came right up to Jerusalem. They surrounded the city, and Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria, sends a letter to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, demanding that he surrender. Now, by this point, Hezekiah's heart has been completely changed. He's turned completely to the Lord. And so Hezekiah takes this letter that the Assyrian king has given him. He spreads it on the ground. And then this happens in Isaiah 37, verse 15. Follow on the screen with me. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So Hezekiah takes this letter from the king who's attacking him. He lays it on the ground, and he prays. And he says, God, 
we don't know what to do. Like, we have no wisdom of our own. And we need you to do something on our behalf. We need you to deliver us from the problem that we are in. A little bit later in chapter 37, after Hezekiah and his leaders have laid this out before the Lord, they've prayed over it, they've sought the Lord in all of this, the Bible says that an angel of the Lord came and in one night struck down the entire Assyrian army of 185,000 soldiers in one night, all of them, just struck them all down and delivered God's people from a situation that God's people did not know how to get out of. Listen, loved ones, here's the point. God comes to his people in real-life situations and gives them the wisdom that they need for the situation that they're in. Whether it's in Hezekiah's day, Isaiah's day, or whether it's in our day today, in our life, in our circumstances, God comes to his people in real-life situations and gives the wisdom that we need for the situation that we're in. The thing is this, God's wisdom and God's ways are nothing like what we're gonna hear from the world. Nothing at all, it's completely different. So now, we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter one, and that's what Paul is talking about in verse 19, where he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That's what he's talking about, and so we move on now to verse 20, and Paul says, where's the one who is wise? Like, where's the scribe? In other words, where's the scholar? Where's the well-educated person? He says, where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In other words, where are the smartest people that you can find in this world? Where is the wisest wisdom that, in, that is in this world? Because the reality is you can live your life according to the wisdom that the world applauds. Like you can live your life according to the wisdom of your favorite TV shows, your favorite movies. You can live your life according to the wisdom of the philosophies that clog up the system of our world. But at the end of the day, the wisdom of the world means nothing to God. And the wisest people are those who understand that all of life is lived in relationship to God. The wisest people are the ones who understand that all of life is lived in relationship to the work that God has accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember Psalm 14, verse 1? The psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. Bible says that's foolish. That's what foolishness is. The Bible says that those who are wise live the entirety of their life in relationship to God. See, what God is looking for are the hearts of his people who are turned entirely back to him. That is wisdom. Hearts turned entirely back to God, taking the problems that we face taking the battles that we're in, so to speak, and and much like Hezekiah, just laying those problems down before the Lord. Just coming before God, just laying those things down. I'm I'm bringing the health problem that I'm up against. I'm I'm bringing the financial problem that I'm up against. I'm bringing the marriage problem that I'm up against. I'm bringing the problem that I have with my kids. I'm bringing that before you. I'm I'm bringing the problem with my job to you, Lord. I'm, I'm just laying all of these things down before you, and I'm praying, God, I don't know what to do. Like, I have no wisdom for this situation. I don't know where to go. I don't know what my next step should be. And God, I need you to act on my behalf because I know that you are the God of wisdom. He's the God who confounds the wisdom of the world. 
He's the God who has proven his perfect wisdom at the cross by making a way for us to be saved, a way which, by the way, not a single one of us in this room, really not a single person who has ever lived on the face of the planet would ever be able to understand or would ever dream up that this is the way we're going to be saved. This is the way that we're going to be reconciled to God. And yet in all of that, he says here that God destroys the wisdom of the wise. The cross must be central to our lives because the cross declares God's love over you. The cross reveals God's wisdom for you. And then Paul just continues this same thought with this final point, number three. Because the cross unleashes God's power through you. We need to keep the cross central to all that we are and to all that we do because the cross unleashes God's power through you. Uh, Verse 21, Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Notice, uh, knowing God doesn't happen because you achieve some superior level of wisdom. True salvation, he says here, doesn't come through amazing signs or wonders or, or acquiring a certain level of wisdom. True salvation comes through a man who has been robbed of all dignity by dying the most brutal death known to the world at that time simply because he loved us. True salvation. Salvation comes, he says here, when you believe in him. When you believe in Jesus Salvation, notice, he says, salvation doesn't come here when you do good things. Salvation doesn't come because you're somehow smart enough to figure out how to get through this life. Instead, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. It pleased God through, through the folly of the words that are being declared right now. It pleases him through the folly of what we preach to save those who what? Who believe who believe in Jesus, it happens through the message that we proclaim that the world thinks is crazy. Why? Because that's the wisdom of God. Like we all go from here and, and we proclaim the message of Christ crucified because that's the only message we have. And because we know that that message has totally transformed us. It's changed us from the inside out. Like the moment that we go from here and, and we try and add something to the gospel to make it more acceptable to people who don't understand it is the moment that we take something away from the power of the gospel. We have one message. We preach Christ crucified because the power is in the cross. That message, Paul says, is stumbling block. It's, it's scandalous to some and it's folly to others. But look again at what he says in verse 24. It says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is the power of the word of the cross. Whether it's Jew or Greek, it doesn't really matter. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't really matter. Check this out, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 up on the screen as well. Paul says this uh, very early on as he writes this letter to the church in Rome. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. There it is again. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But notice this, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is powerful to save despite our different backgrounds, despite our different experiences, despite our different sins. Jesus can save anyone from anything at any time in any place. Like that should fill our hearts with worship to know that he came to us at a particular moment in our past, opened our eyes to the glory and the wonder of who he is and all that he has done and it's totally changed us. Like this is the good news. This is the mission that we've been given. We preach Christ crucified to everyone. But then notice this, in mysteries that are not for us to know, the power of God and the wisdom of God, notice what he says here, calls some. So that call creates faith in the heart of the hearer to believe in the word of the cross. So when that call is extended and that faith is planted and that repentance grows out of that, that is the power and the wisdom of God within a person's life. Just think back to your own experience when you came to know Christ. That's the power of God and the wisdom of God at work, being applied to your own life as you come to Christ. Power of God, wisdom of God within your life. And that's why we preach Christ crucified because when that call is extended and that faith is planted and then that repentance grows out of that, all of the honor and the glory is not being given to the people who are wise enough to figure that out because nobody's wise enough to figure that out. Like, we never would have thought of that. And all the glory and the honor is not being given to people who are eloquent enough to make a message like that sound attractive, because none of us can do that. Like, that message is not attractive to those who don't believe. Instead, all of the honor and the glory is being given to God because he's able to bring about salvation in a way that at first glance to us looks entirely impossible. Which then is why Paul says this in verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Just think about this for a second. So many people in Paul's day, so many people in Jesus' day, so many people in our day today looking for a Messiah, looking for a Savior who is strong, a Savior who is powerful, a Savior who will deliver us, a Savior who will, who will free us and defeat all of our enemies and lead us on into victory. And so many people just saying, we need to see it. We need to feel it. We need to taste it if we're going to believe it. And God says, I'm doing that. Only I'm doing it in a far more significant way than you realize. I'm doing it not only to deliver you from your outward problems. I'm doing it to deliver you ultimately from the problem of your heart. I'm doing it to save you. And I'm doing it in a way where the Messiah is not going to come and, and he's going to overpower everyone. I'm doing it in a way where I'm sending my only son to be the savior, to be the Christ, to be the deliverer who will come in humility. And when he is dragged brutally to the cross, he will not open his mouth. But he will go there and he will die for you so that you can be reconciled to God. Praise the Lord. Don't forget that the moment of your salvation 
is only the beginning of the power of God and the wisdom of God within your life. It doesn't stop at the moment that you're saved. It carries on even until today. So whatever circumstance you may find yourself in today, wherever it is that you're going to go after we're done here, whatever situation and circumstance that you're walking into through the course of the week to come, when you're worried or you're afraid or you're anxious, you have the power of God and the wisdom of God for whatever circumstance you're in. No matter the situation, you have Christ in you. You have the power of God that has raised you from death to life. When you're tempted to do something this week that you know will not honor God, but you think it's going to give you some measure of fulfillment within your life, understand that you have the power of God that has transferred you from darkness to light. And it's not just that it transferred you at that one moment from darkness to light, but that it's that power that remains in you that gives you the ability to walk in the light and not in the darkness. When you're leaning toward the wisdom of the world to parent your kids or to get through a situation at work and and you're just bearing down, you're just putting your head down and driving your way through it, you're white knuckling the whole way and you just want to get through it, get it done, maybe nobody's going to know about it. Listen, even in a situation like that, you have the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ in you. Power of God and the wisdom of God because Jesus Christ lives in you. You, so turn to him. Trust in him. All of our life centered around the cross. The cross-centered life. Why, why, why do we do that? Because the power is in the cross.